tuning in to this week's episode of the Mike Thacker Show. I am here in the studio with a new friend of mine called uh, Miss Kimberly Stewart, or maybe Miss Kim Stewart. I don't know whether she refers Kimberly or Kim, but we'll go with the Sunday official name for now. Kimberly is a writer, and if you read her Instagram posts, you will know exactly what I mean by that, uh, because evidently she is eloquent when she's not penning a book, as well as when she is penning a book. I read her Instagram posts, and I am embarrassed about the stuff that I oh, write with a little smiley not. face or a screamy face. And Kim's writing war and peace about the sunset that's <laughs> giving her emotional, you know, warmth and whatever else as her hair blows in the what? breeze, you know, on the lake front. And yeah, oh, I don't have that problem clearly. Shit. Yeah, we've already had some problems in this conversation and I haven't even said anything. Mike, that's completely false. First of all, who wants to read war and peace? That's a horrible thing to say about me. Second of all, I'm not trying to be anything i just am talking mostly about my kids and they do bring out some words some of them are good some of them are not so good so um that <laughs> if you're getting war and peace from that that's an issue as for my name you can call me anything you would like kimberly typically is what people call me if i'm doing something wrong my mom only calls me kimberly if i'm in big trouble so let's go kim okay and just listen, just check out the posts, okay? Because mine are like two <laughs> words and three words. So war and peace is relative to the, the, the quality <laughs> and quantity of words that I choose when I'm writing. Okay, as long as you're not saying that I put people to sleep, because I know a lot of people who didn't no, make no, it I was meaning, war and I was peace, meaning so. verbose and eloquently verbose. Okay, I'll you know, take not, that. Not okay. negatively. <laughs> so I met Kim recently. I was out in California at a, a writer's gig with uh, Bob Goff, who's actually going to be joining us on the show here soon. So uh, look out for that episode. And so Kim was one of the folks who was out there talking about how to write. And because we've just established that my writing ability is not at the same level of Kim's, as evidenced by our Instagram posts, um, it was very helpful for me to spend a couple of days there and listen to some, some wiser folks than me uh, explain how you're supposed to write and, and put words on paper. And apparently I can't use emojis and the screaming face. I only have one emoji. And it's the screaming face. So anybody that gets that. emojis from me, that's that's it. It's the only one I ever... Listen, it works in every situation. There, there's screaming? a phrase. There's a phrase in England. So if you're a bit of a slang whatever, there is a phrase that people will say. And, and, and it's I-N-I-T, oh, yeah, in it. It's okay. short for isn't it? But okay, I The genius this. of the phrase is good, bad, or indifferent. It works in every situation. You use it all the time. Yeah, I mean, the food's in terrible, isn't it? The food was awesome, isn't it? Fantastic. I, I feel like screaming emoji has that same kind of placeholder. It's like Flash Gordon. It's untouchable. It's on the top of the hill. You don't know what, no, you do know what Flash Gordon is. You, you're nearly as I'm old as me. I'm starting to choke because I'm laughing so hard. Um, yeah, I just, I'm not sure I've ever actually used the screaming emoji. And so now that I know it is faintly British in nature, maybe I'll try it. That screaming emoji always looks like the, um, the monk painting the screamer paint you know what i'm talking about the i'm married to a norwegian so i'm supposed to know things like that there's a painting of the screaming person which is kind of death and morbidity um to me so are you saying screaming death or you're just saying see, eh, i didn't screaming. see that at all this is like a glass half full glass half empty moment and apparently <laughs> for once in my life i'm the glass half full guy and evidently you <laughs> are the half empty because it looks like a corpse the screaming person is gray and blue and dying. 
You don't think that looks like no, dead? No, I think it looks happy. It's like. Oh yeah, no, no, that's not what I'm picking up. <laughs> okay, so apparently. I'll try it. I'll try it. one for me and Kim here. Let's see whether we make it through a whole episode of the show today. Um, <laughs> Miss Kim, we like to ask a few questions to, to help you settle in and help the okay. audience get to know you. And I'm apparently ready. they already don't like you because they're on <laughs> team Mike over here with the screaming emoji. So you've got some work Death to do on corpse. Death corpse. Okay, I'm okay, ready. I'll is, be really serious now. So this is rapid fire. Okay, you know, I like to think about this. Gosh. You got to shoot from the hip. I'm a planner. Go ahead. If I think you're cheating, we're going to edit it out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good to know. What is your favorite food? I would say pasta in every form, preferably eaten in Italy, which hardly ever happens. But if it ever did, it would be really great. Okay. Favorite book in the past year? Mm. In the last year? And you can't say oh, your own. Super oh, that would be so <laughs> gross. I don't read my own books. Um, <laughs> let me think about this. Okay, well, very recently, I read a fantastic book by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Highly recommend. Fantastic. Um, I have to think about the fiction piece of it. I don't know. Can I come back to it? This is okay. high pressure for me. I should have prepared. I didn't the know was The first to guest to ever say, can I come back to a rapid fire <laughs> question? But yes. We will put this one on the board and we will return to it later. So number three, favorite movie ever. Oh my gosh. Well, this is just to show you my half full glass. Flash Gordon. Um, Flash Gordon, no, you're not going <laughs> to like this, Mike. You're going to kick me off. Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. Oh. Okay, you are correct. <laughs> On that one, yes. We are going to just move on. I'm not even going to respond. What is your <laughs> Have favorite? Have you seen it? Why would I? Okay. Okay. See, there you, you disqualified. This is like you when you scroll it. through Netflix and they have these thumbnails that look so terrible. You don't even click on it to see okay, what I cannot. About. Please, please say no more because okay. you will injure my feelings about you. Go ahead. <laughs> Next question that do. I will fail. <laughs> favorite thing to do. Oh, sit on the end of a dock at a lake and drink a glass of wine and talk with my husband. Which apparently is evidenced by previously said Instagram feed. <laughs> Once again, it's amazing how this keeps coming up. Number five, <laughs> best single piece of advice you've ever been given. Oh, it was great marriage advice. And it was by an older woman who'd been married 8,000 years, roughly rounding down. And when asked how she did it, like what was the secret sauce? She said, assume the best. And by that, she meant most of our interactions that turn into conflict or arguments, we just have forgotten to assume the best of the people that we love. So that was a humdinger for me because I do tend to create narratives in my head that do not exist. Instead of assuming that Mark, my very awesome husband, actually really loves me and didn't mean to say, or you know, didn't mean to be a doink. That's an Iowa word that we use, which means doink. So assuming the best is better. And then can I have two? I'm gonna. The other one is never keep score. That's really probably, that goes everywhere, not just in marriage. You know what I mean. If I'm saying to Mark, you did the dishes yesterday, I will do them today and you will do them tomorrow. No one wins, right? It's like no a very wins. balanced way to do the dishes, to be fair. Oh my gosh. How's Linda? <laughs> I feel I need to talk with her. Okay. So Kim, 
somebody meets you in an elevator and you say, hey, my name is Kim. Feel free to take it away. You got 60 seconds. The floor is yours. I make easy enemies of British men in Houston. <laughs> and also I am a mom of three, wife to one, my college sweetheart. And I write books. I have eight books that have been published, um, all novels. And I also do some speaking. That's what I would say. I probably wouldn't say the rest of that part, actually, all the job part. I get to that later. You know what I'm saying? I don't usually lead with, this is what I do. It sounds a little bougie. So, so I would so probably what, say mom. But then I'm, I'm assuming when you say that, people say, oh, tell me more about the books. Like, what kind of books are they? Or they want to they know something. So I guess what led you down the path of the style that you write? Right. So I write rom-com. So if you... I'm, positive that you won't watch these movies, Mike, but maybe some of your listeners have seen things with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. That's the kind of, that's the kind of feel. So kind of little sass and chemistry. I don't write romance in the, in, so <laughs> you've said that in your home land, in it is a little bit of a slang in our, in my kind of sub genre of the writing business romance can often often mean what we call a bodice ripper so those covers where you know fabio's on the front in the grocery store and lots of packs and stuff that's not what i write um so it ends up being kind of a cumbersome conversation if folks think that that is what i write because i don't it's mostly um there's a little bit of romance but mostly that's chemistry driven lots of quirky characters and if you grant so, so more was in the movie rated versus oh yeah um, for sure yeah, because I have, yeah, I mean, I love that part of a love story, kind of the, the chase and again, the banter and the chemistry, that's the fun part. So I've definitely run up against how very countercultural that is. Um, I've had many conversations over 17 years of writing with editors and publishers who would prefer me to kind of push that envelope a little bit. Um, particularly when 50 shades of gray came out, there was this whole like movement to make sure that we were really raunchifying everything we were writing. And that just didn't appeal to me. Um, I mean, there's room on the shelf, you know, if that's your thing, go to it. But, um, I just, it felt like a cop out a little bit to me to kind of just move into that sphere, even though it didn't really serve the story. So I didn't. And I think there are lots of folks out there who are who appreciate that, you know, and, and on one level, since I'm a parent, my books arrive in my home. And so they're like on the actual coffee table. So it's important to me for when my 15 year old son picks up one of my books that pages, you know, opens to a random page that there are no pectoral muscles in process at that moment. Okay, so obviously, for, for me, you know, this is kind of like a, a creative type conversation, because yeah. when I when I when I listen to the story and think about you as a writer, and obviously for the listeners who are listening, um, you know, there's this creative element of your life where you you craft a story, you, you, you create something that doesn't exist. And then you obviously you tell it through words versus graphics or imagery, you know, video film, that kind of right. stuff. But then I'm assuming you've also got this business side that you've got to get involved in. And my guess is like most creatives you probably don't enjoy the business side so much and you really enjoy the creative side a little bit more. But if you've been writing as long as you've been writing, 
And it sounds like you were relatively young when you started, which means this was all very new to you. Mm-hmm. Talk us through what that was like as you navigated this balance of, well, I want to be a creative, but I got to do this business stuff. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it just doesn't get paid for. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, most, most conversations in this sphere end up stopping at the creative piece. And so that's one of the things that I love about you and, and about your work and your show is my golly, this is a business about- show. <laughs> <laughs> right. You have planted the flag, but you are correct that most people in the creative arts, most people in particular in publishing for that matter, um, I think have a hard time um, moving in both of those lanes. A lot of, I do a lot of coaching with Bob and we help people get their books from infancy to a full um, manuscript into a proposal piece that you can present to agents and to editors. And there's always this conversation that I kind of have to force at some point that I love your work. I love what you're doing. I love the idea behind what you're doing, but publishing is not, um, it's not charity. And the people who work in these houses have to stay in the black. And so it really is not a creative conversation as much as it is a business conversation. And so um, I think my on-ramp to that was a little faster than some, my dad's an entrepreneur and I grew up in a home where we talked about business and we talked about how to, how to leverage your gifts in a way that allows you to do what you love and to um, require fair compensation so that you continue to do what you love. And really the highest priority in my parents growing up was generosity. And so all of those pieces were going into that same direction. How can we use what we've been given um, in a beautiful way? And so there wasn't a, there was no shame in terms of like, um, I don't know, I think sometimes in a faith context, there's like this um, strange undercurrent of you know, if you make, if you make a lot of money or if you do well financially, then is there some sort of almost a moral dilemma there? And my parents never presented it that way. It was always, whatever you have is a gift. And how do you get that gift to more people? So when I came to publishing, which is, that was a second career for me or third or whatever, I was a teacher. I was an ESL teacher and a Spanish teacher in a high school. And I loved it and started having, um, babies and staying home with them. And, um, that pivot into a different sphere. I think I had a little bit probably where I thought a few years where I thought, oh, this is about what I can create. And then I'll hand it off to the publisher and then they'll do all of like that business stuff. False, (laughs) um, false then, and even more false. Now the author is absolutely required and expected to, um, advocate for her work, maybe more than the publisher. Um, and so it just requires a person to have some skin in the game and to come to marketing meetings and sales meetings with my head screwed on straight and with a good plan and to constantly be looking at how the landscape is shifting. Every book I've, I've written, every one that has launched has had a very different landscape. i my first book came out. I can't remember a million, it feels like a million years ago. Let's see. My son was, I was pregnant with my son when I wrote it and he is going to be 16. So it's been a while. And when that came out, 
there were, I had author friends who didn't have a website. Like that was a completely different landscape. I think the only social media was fledgling, maybe Facebook. That wasn't even a part of the deal. People were doing blog tours a little bit, but so anyway, every single book that comes out, it's just a different, it's a different gig in a lot of ways. And so I think it has been a good thing for me first that my parents taught me to work really hard and to be kind you'd be surprised how many people in this business are just not very kind. And I think it's because it's so vulnerable to create something and then to give it in a public sense to the world and just kind of sit and wring your hands and wait for what people have to say, that it's easy to become incredibly internal and incredibly um, fearful almost. So that goes against what my parents taught me to do, which was to say thank you and to get your nose down and work hard. And then a lot of the things that you can't control, um, you can just let go of those. And then the other piece is that is that business acumen, just to be really having honest conversations with a, with a publisher about um, where things are going and how I can make, how I can put this product or put this book in front of the folks who really would like it. So when, so when a, one of your books comes out, do you typically kind of hit the road is that, is that part of a, like a sales process? Cause, cause it's, this is very different for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, obviously in a business environment, I think a lot of the folks listening to the show are probably entrepreneurial minded. Mm-hmm. And so the kinds of things that we might think about writing would be more nonfiction. It would be factual. Sure. It might be, you know, research driven, um, you know, things that would help people develop a skill or, or gr- mm-hmm. grow into a, a new role or whatever, whereas you come from a very different place. So, mm-hmm. so I imagine the journey of, of launching that book and then getting it into the hands of people is, is probably quite different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're narrowing in on all the things that publishing people talk about and scratch their heads about. You are correct that fiction is a different animal. I have long held a just a not even secret jealousy of nonfiction writers because you have a built-in platform. So when you approach the press or you approach um, any sort of outlet or a podcast host or print media or what have you, you have, you already can say, here's my talking point, right? I'm writing about entrepreneurship. I'm writing about body image, you know, I mean, whatever, there's like a thing and people just know, oh, we're going to talk about the thing. If you write a novel, I'm going to talk to you about some fake people who've been living in my head for a good long while. I put them on paper and maybe they'll be in a movie one day. Like that's a little bit more nebulous. So um, I don't know, about probably five or six books in, I had some fantastic help from someone who had built her own company and was a straight up ninja entrepreneur and had fancy business degrees. Um, to undergird that. And she was so helpful. I really, I came to a point where I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody in publishing. I don't want to talk to anybody who's book, who, who has launched a book, edited a book, been a part of a book. I want to talk to someone who has built a business. And she was fantastic and really helped me know how to approach the press and how to, um, now that I had, and that was after a time that I, that particular book had broken into Target nationwide. So the distribution was in place. The product was good. I loved the book. I felt really strongly that it was a great book. And so all of those pieces were in place. This is way down the line from my first one 16 years ago. And she was so helpful in saying, okay, we've got all of that 
now you, now you need people to talk about it. And that's how I can help. And so she's just a friend of the family. She just was super kind to help me think in that, in that way. Um, but that was one of the most productive com long conversations I've ever had, because again, she wasn't coming from a point of, oh, I know what to do with your book, right? I know what to do with your marketing plan for your book. She was saying, oh, I know how to sell things. So let me tell you what I know about how to sell something that you believe in. So as for a tour, people don't really do that very much anymore in terms of like a book tour or speaking tour. big dogs do. I mean, people who have a lot of, um, a lot of, there's, you know, only so many marketing dollars allocated in a particular house. And so, um, and publishing has seen what so many other industries have seen in terms of consolidation. So it used to mean there was a just myriad small and medium-sized houses. And then what we call the big six, well, the big six have really gobbled up all of those small and medium-sized houses, most of them. And so if you're, a, you know, my last book was with Simon and Schuster, venerable, old, wonderful publisher here in the US. And, you know, if there are, I don't know how many new titles they pump out in one year. Mine was a very teeny, tiny, tiny fish in that big bond. And so I went in knowing I'm going to leverage their, um, contacts and I'll leverage their name. But as far as the launch of the book and the promotion of the book, I will assume they're doing nothing and then just work my tail off and do, do what I can. And that seems to be the best. No one wants to hear this all of the people listening to this show who thought they wanted to write a book are currently depressed, but I'm just telling you, this is just straight talk. No one wants to hear, oh, actually writing is just like 50% of what you do. The other 50%, maybe even more is helping your book get into the hands of people who will love it. And that largely the onus of that really largely, um, rests on your shoulders. Yeah, it's funny. So I listened to a, a masterclass with uh, Chris Voss, who was an FBI hostage negotiator. Oh, cool. And he, you know, he makes this comment, ev everything in life is a negotiation. Mm. You know, why do you want to do this class? Because everything's, and, and it's, it's the same here. You know, we've come mm. to a place where everybody, everybody has to be a salesperson, whether, yeah, that's good. whether it's, you know, you're selling yourself to go get a new job, whether you're selling yourself internally in a big corporation to network and build relationships, whether you're selling yourself to customers, whether you're selling yourself as an author or a blogger or a podcaster. And I, I think some people are wired for it and love it. I think some people hate it, but the reality is you can't get away from it if you want to see some success. And so we've all got to learn to adapt and find our natural comfort level within mm. that schematic. Mm. And I think, that, I think the reality for a lot of folks you know, just thinking through listening to, you know, to you talk, some of us probably don't do that as well as, as we could. Mm. Others probably do it better than they should. And mm. I think the, 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 the linear scale of success is probably not linear at all. It's probably very imbalanced towards mm. those that can do the sales pitch better, irrespective of the quality of, of the product, mm. whether the product is a physical product or, you know, a, a creative product, whatever it is. Right. And I don't, I don't think that's going to change, you know, and right. it's not to be mean or to be harsh, but no, it's the reality of, of where we are. No. And you know, you're, when we talk about writers, typically, I mean, I think maybe a vast majority of folks who love to write are introverts. And so by nature, they like to be alone with their work. And so then, you know, pushing publish, you know, going to a point where that's coming out with a barcode. And then people start asking you to speak or to be, you know, in kind of a more public environment 
talking about your book, that's a very uneasy ask for folks who would, who would prefer not, but I just don't know how you can escape it. I really don't. Um, I have a friend who has done a great job pivoting several times in his life. He's a total entrepreneur at heart and in practice. And he has said to me, um, we've talked about this, um, in terms of social media, and there are lots of folks in my business who would prefer not to be on social media. And so, and they're quite vocal about that, actually quietly vocal because they're not on social media saying it, but in conversation, it'll come up and they'll say, well, I'm not into that. You know, I'm not into it either. That's not my, my knee jerk. I have such a, I put such a high value on real conversation and social media is almost a desert for that. And so that's not my favorite space to hang out but it is absolutely a part of my job. And it is absolutely something that I continually step into and try to bring some light and joy and laughter and real stuff into, even though it feels like an Everest to climb. And when people say this, well, I'm not into social media. I'm not going to do that part. I mean, my friend Josh and I have said, well, you got to get out of this line at the career fair, at the career fair. You're in the wrong line. You just, you can't be in this line anymore. Just like if you were in the line for being a surgeon and you got to the front and, and said, okay, I really don't like blood, but I really want to be a surgeon. I'm in the pilot line. I'm not really great with heights, but I really want to be a pilot. Like there are some parts of this that you, you just, you absolutely just have to put both feet down into whether or not you love it. And I think social media and public speaking and things like that, I think those are just part of the gig. And I'm with you, Mike. I think you decide how you, how you take that on right? Not everyone's going to do the same thing. I don't think you need to be a boss at every single piece of social media, or you have to speak at every single event, but I think it's a good idea to be honest with, with yourself. If you're thinking about going into something like this and just know part of the gig. Yeah. So then I guess before we leave the creative piece here, if you go to speak at an event, what do you speak about? And I may be being naive here, but I'm guessing you don't want to give away too much of the book and it's, it's fiction. So, so here's what happens when you write a book, for some reason, people think you are a public speaker. It is the weirdest thing. Like if I decide to uh, become a paleontologist, I don't think anyone says, Oh, great. You're also good with OB-GYN. Can you come deliver my baby? I, they're not related. Writing and speaking are not related, but for some reason, people think if you've written a book, Oh, can you come speak at our event? This was a shocker to me when I started writing. I was like, why are they asking me that? They don't want you to read the book. Like they really want you to speak at an event. So I just started saying yes. Cause I didn't know I could say no. Um, and it turns out um, all my teaching experience was probably super helpful with that, but I never, I never, I really never went to events thinking I would talk about my book. Um, I've had kind of, I've, I've kind of monkeyed with how that works because on the one hand, my publisher's like, why are you talking about your book? Um, but I, that was not what was driving me to go to these events. What was driving me was connecting with people and honestly, usually talking about my faith. So there's usually a faith comp- component, you know, if a church would ask me or right. a women's group would ask me or whatever, they don't care about my novel. Now they will buy the novel afterwards because they feel like they know me a little bit. And so right. they've, you know, we've connected on that level, but I don't talk about fiction. I might talk about, you know, living a, a great story. Like that's about as close as I get. Um, or if it's a writing focused event, 
then I talk about the craft of writing really more than anything or the discipline of writing or what it looks like on a daily basis when you have three little kids. So like library events or book festivals or book signings, that kind of thing. That's where that would go. So it's either really the craft in the and the kind of the life of writing or it was a faith infused talk, which had really nothing to do with any specific book. But I there are themes in my books that always come out. Grace is always in my, it's in everything that I write. It's been something that's changed my life. And so that just creeps in even to fake people's lives in my stories. Um, Stubborn, persistent love that gets in there too. So like some of those things end up coming out over and over, but you're right. I don't really stand up. And in fact, I hate it when people ask me to read, read my books. Ew. No, go read it by yourself in quiet. Well, I better put this book away then. I was going to ask you to. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable. They're not, it's not meant to be read aloud by me. I just don't love that part. I don't know because I did an audio book with TD Jakes and it was kind of cool hearing, you know, TD's got this big booming, you know, low okay, voice. Okay, well, so. if I sound like TD, then it's probably different. If I could pretend I was Morgan Freeman again. So then let's talk about faith. So you, you mentioned faith, obviously, as a part of your life. So you've got these these undercurrents of faith coming in your books, but you don't you don't write Christian books. They're not they're not faith books, right? So some of them have been published by Christian publishers, and so there oh. are sometimes faith themes. But um, I am wholly, completely committed to really good storytelling, and I think sometimes if you layer in or put that veil of faith over even any novel, it becomes. Um, I, I'm not a I'm not a preacher. I don't want people to read my books and feel like they've really read a great three point sermon. That's not it's just not my thing. And so my I love it when folks come to me who have really no interest in faith and say to me, "Hey, I I really love that book, and I felt like you talked about faith in a way that didn't make me feel bludgeoned or you know that you were trying to coerce or convince me." Um, that's a compliment to me. Because for me, that is what faith is. It's just, it's infused in all of the spheres of my life, including storytelling. But I'm really not gonna, I'm not gonna beat a drum about it. I don't think Jesus needs me to be his salesman, woman. So so if it comes out naturally, uh, but it's not the primary driver for what you're doing, how how do you balance that? Or have you found yourself in a situation where you've had to think very intentionally about, hang on a second, if, if I choose this road, you know, it could have a negative impact on, on this or vice versa. Oh, Mike, this is starting to feel like a really helpful session. Yes, is the answer to that. In fact, I've, I've been in those situations on both sides of the coin. So I've written, quote unquote, Christian fiction, and then I've written mainstream fiction. And I have felt like a weirdo in both camps. So on the Christian piece, I've had actual conversations with publishers where they say, you know, why aren't there any Bible verse citations in this? Or I had one publisher who said he couldn't wait to work with me. was super complimentary and bidding on my manuscript and then said to me, so just so you're clear, your main character, we have to take it out when she has a glass of wine, unless she's an alcoholic, if she's a raging alcoholic and really working through addiction, then she can be, then that can be in that scene. It's like all of these weird 
rules that we impose, they impose. And again, that's not an artistic conversation. That's a business conversation. Right. That's a conversation where they feel like, listen, we have found our target market and our target market does not want that glass of wine in there. And so you need to take it out. Um, so on the Christian piece, I've felt, I'm always feeling like I'm just some wild woman, which is hilarious. I am not <laughs> Oh, I think you found that at the beginning of this conversation when I really, really would like to plan my answers for my favorite book and my movie. Not a wild woman, but that's kind of how I've been made to feel there. And then um, on the other toke, on the other side of the coin in mainstream fiction, I'm a total weirdo too. Just Pollyanna, soup, way too clean, like clean to the point where people will say in that sphere, hey, how about you write? Um, a middle grade novel for like sixth graders or a young adult novel because not because of the voice or the characters, but simply because I don't have, you know, it's not erotica, right? It's not, there isn't enough like casual sex in it. So, or any casual sex in it. So yeah, I mean, it's a constant tug and pull for me to figure out how to tell a story worth telling in a voice that is true and at the same time, um, just kind of just know who I am and just keep writing into that over and over and over. Even if folks are saying you're crazy. Um, there have been times when I felt completely like I was born in the wrong era. Like I should have been Lucille Ball. I, this is, this is not the right time. You know, like I can't, I can't figure out where I fit. Um, a good example of that is when I had a, an offer on a book that was absolutely contingent on me dirtying it up. Like they were really excited about this book, but they just wanted me to change all of it. And this was a fancy house with a really, I mean, it was a, it was a carrot, you know, that writers kind of push toward. And so um, that's, those moments are very um, clarifying to remember why am I doing this, right? Am I doing this so that I check a box? Or am I doing this to, to write something that I love and that I feel um, improves or inspires a conversation worth having? But man, it's not, I'm telling you, you're catching, if you caught me, I, there are all sorts of times where if you would call during that week, I would say, not a good week, call me back. <laughs> because it takes a certain amount of like internal fortitude to remember in any sphere, Every one of your listeners knows what I'm talking about. In any sphere, it takes a certain amount of what is the North Star? What is the thing that is me and that God wired me to do? And no one will advocate for that the way you do. And there will be plenty of people along the way who say, I've got a really great idea for who you are. <laughs> you know? So what, what's helped you get through those times? You know, when you think about, you know, the, the internal wrestling of do, do I compromise on this? You know, mm -hmm. what's the repercussion if I do, is that yeah. down to your upbringing? Is it down to the way your parents raised you? Is it down to your husband? Is it friends or mm -hmm. you know, where have you found that strength? Where could other people go to look when they're facing those similar kind of situations and, and they just, you know, they want to be successful. Right. Mm -hmm. But if they do, it, it might mean, you know, bending a little on this and is it, is it worth the bend? Yeah. Such a great question. For me, coming back to your obsession with your screaming emoji of corpse, 
I think about death, Mike. Um, I really do. I really think about like no sliding in the, in the screaming face. <laughs> Steph, Steph, of course, those aren't natural eyes. Um, I think about just like sliding into home at the end. And at the end, that what will I regret? Will I regret choice A or choice B? And that's usually pretty clarifying. Um, again, my faith is a driver. And so I pretty early into this particular writing part of my life, I was surrounded by a lot of writers who were riding this roller coaster of personal worth. So when a book did well, they were great. And then when a book tanked, it was really messy. And they rode every one of those hills up and down. And I didn't see that that would be sustainable. I just, I, that was too brutal for my own heart to continue to put my worth on how many Amazon reviews I got and how much publicity the book got and how many reprints there were. And so, um, for me, writing is absolutely an act of surrender over and over and saying, this is something I do and I love it, but it's not who I am. Um, so that's usually pretty clarifying if I feel, you know, and some I'm, I'm acting like this is really linear and streamlined. No, next, you should have my husband on the show and he will give you a slightly different perspective of how well, how well I've navigated this. Some, sometimes I do better than others, but I'm old enough now. And I've had enough time in this business now that I know I can tell in my heart and in my head when I'm off the rails, when I'm starting to look at things that actually don't really matter that much. There's a difference between working your tail off and getting the best of you into what you're doing and fully identifying yourself with that product. That is a very important distinction for me. If I'm feeling like this book is me and if it does well, then I'm okay. That is danger, danger, danger. I've had lots of friends come in and out of the writing business in 16 years and the ones who left were the ones who got, they just were taking too much on their own hearts and minds of how does this book do? And that will tell me if I'm a good writer or not, or that will tell me if I'm a worthy voice in this conversation. Um, I just don't, I think that's a no win. Well, so, so we're getting kind of close on time here, but how do you, how do you process that then? You know, you create, you create something that is by nature, a creative work that other mm -hmm. people are going to look at and decide for themselves whether they enjoy it or not. You can't, yeah. you can't make any changes at that point. You can't evolve, adapt or whatever. Right. So how, how do you handle that when, you know, you hear somebody giving high praise or you hear somebody, you know, being overly critical, does it, does it internalize? Does it, does it shape, you know, the, the next book or, or do you have a process for, for how you kind of compartmentalize that out? Cause again, I suspect, you know, I, I, I live through that as a business guy. I mean, we, right. we create workspaces that we think are, I mean, I'm not going to say the best ones out there, but definitely above average. Right. And, and so that's an intentionality that we have to fight for every day to keep delivering a great, you know, level of experience, keep delivering a great product. And, and when people don't enjoy it for some reason, or have something to say, you know, we have to sit back and say, okay, is that, is that a valid comment? Mm -hmm. Are they misunderstanding why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it? You know, because they don't, they don't see the full picture, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in a business sense, you know, we have uh, 
encrypted door handles on our doors, which is not standard for our type of business. Usually it's a good old fashioned key. We didn't want to do keys. We wanted to do cards. And now we're up to um, a third version um, in our, our newest location where it actually you can do codes, you can do you know biometric thumbprint. And the reason for the change or the improvement was a lot of the times people forget their key cards. Yeah. And it sounds like a small thing, but we build That's big awesome. spaces and our totally. staff, you know, to walk to somebody's office and back is eight, nine minutes sometimes and you do that right. five or six times a day. And it's like, hang on a minute, you know, that's, that's a whole lot of lost time. So yeah. how can we deliver a better experience to the member who gets to the door and doesn't have to realize, oh, I've forgotten my key card. I can't get in now. I got to walk all the way back. I'm late for yeah. a Zoom call or whatever, but, but they don't necessarily yeah. think through all of those things when they're just wondering why you, why you upgraded my door handles? Like you just caused me a problem. No, we're trying to give you something better, you know, from your perspective in your creative realm, you know, what does that look like? And how do you handle that? First of all, I want that doorknob now. So <laughs> I've created a coveting issue. Um, you won't be building in okay. Iowa. Just, just to be You won't clear. be building there. I just want the, I don't want the building. I just want the door handle. So that's super interesting because you're right in my line of work. There's not a lot of pivoting you can do once the book is out, right? right? Unless you have a second edition coming. Um, there's really not a lot you can do. And so I know for as many authors, as you ask this question, you will get as many answers. Mine is to really pay no attention to my Amazon reviews. I do not look at them. I don't check on them. I don't, I mean, the really great ones are lovely and the really junky ones, you know, they're probably all in the same camp. I don't find that helpful. And I was noticing that I would read 99 beautiful reviews, just super kind, thoughtful, lovely reviews. And I'd have one from Danielle and Tara Haute who had something snarky to say in 2008. And I, that like becomes a narrative in my head about that book. Um, and I, maybe we all do that. Maybe that's just me, but I tend to remember the unkind much, much more word for word than the kind. So there was nothing I could do. There's nothing I can do about that. Now, does it inform if I'm hearing the same thing, maybe not on Amazon reviews, but from editors and from other thoughtful right. readers over and over, then yeah, I pay attention to that. But in general, I just don't read a lot of that stuff because I was noticing it wasn't helping me. It was really kind of pushing me to a place of paralysis and that's not going to, that's not helping anybody. So taking feedback maybe from folks who are living and breathing the same kind of thing that you're doing and, uh, you know, ha yes. have a, have a place to be able to give, you know, an yes. opinion versus everybody yes. who has an opinion. Right. And in thoughtful conversations like this, I mean, when I'm doing a book launch or during the time of a release, I'll take note of the things that people are asking about. Um, and these are people who I know who have read the book and they really have some, some questions or some concerns or what have you. That's helpful to me because then I know you've got a little bit of, you've got some interest in what I'm doing. But if it's Danielle from Terre Haute, she could have just eaten a bad burrito. I have no idea. And I'm not, I can't like revamp my entire process because of Danielle, you know, she might not even remember she wrote you, that. You can't. Yeah. Well, you can, but I don't recommend it. I don't know. I don't think Danielle probably thought about that half as much as I did. So yeah, it's a little bit different animal because the product is finite, right? It's out. I can't respond. I can't change things in real time. But if there can, if there are themes of how I'm doing my work that keep coming up, I can address those for sure. And just being agile in that, in that environment, I've, I've noticed that it's helpful for publishers 
if they have an author who is saying, listen, I can, I can move with this, right? I can, I can shake things up. I'm not going to try to do the same thing that I did in, you know, 2010 and when it's 2021 or 2022. And I think that's super helpful. I think it's helpful from, for the author, but also for the people who, who are working with me, it breathes new life into the conversation because they know it's amazing how many authors come to the, a marketing conversation or a sales conversation with their list of what they won't do. <laughs> like, what? Shh, don't say that. You know, definitely say what you will do and be open. You don't know. You just don't know. Maybe the thing you think is just going to be absolute toothpicks in your eyeballs is something that will really catch on with you and you'll like it. Anyway, I think that's in any business, but I don't know if it's just writers in particular that I've noticed that more. No, that's not true. When I was a high school teacher, same thing. You know, people just get stuck in their ruts. And I don't think it, I, I think it is such a beautiful thing when you can come to a conversation and say, I'm open, I'm ready to work hard. What should we do? All right. Well, then on that note, let me ask you our final two questions that we ask oh, every no. guest on the show. So first of all, you know, when it's all over and, uh, and you've become the screaming face emoji <laughs> in your case, because you think it's death. Yeah. Even though I don't, what's the one thing that you would like people to remember you for? Oh, generosity and grace. Easy. That's an easy one. Okay. And what's the one thing you tell the world if you could leave one piece of advice behind? Okay, I just want to go on the record saying these are not like icebreaker questions. These are existential questions. But, but these are the big ones at the end. That's why we save them for the end. <sighs> okay, what do I? What advice would I want to leave with the world? <laughs> Insert dead screaming man emoji. That's what's <laughs> happening right now. Okay, my advice for the entire world. That's great. Just be ridiculously stubborn in the way that you love each other. I just don't think there's a lot of regret in that room. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Kim. She's definitely a lot of fun in person. And hopefully that came through on the audio video as well today. You can go see her books online, obviously Amazon and anywhere else uh, books are sold. Kimberly Stewart, S-T-U-A-R-T. I will do some links in the show notes. If you don't read novels like me, then you know maybe get one for a friend, relative or loved one. But if you're enjoying the conversations we're having on this show, please remember to subscribe and, uh, and hit those notifications as well so you get the latest episodes and you know what's going on. Join us on social media at Real Mike Thacker, or you can go to the website, mikethacker.com or beamazingwithmike.com. Sign up for the monthly newsletter, get access to bonus episodes. Sometimes we talk about stuff off camera that we throw in as a bonus episode, so you'll have access to those. And then we've got some more awesome content coming out later this year that we're working on right now. So, uh, you know, I appreciate you being part of the journey with me. And until next time, let's go out there and be amazing. <laughs>